Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. From Brandeis University, welcome to Recall This Book, where we assemble scholars and writers from different disciplines to make sense of contemporary issues, problems, and events. And I think today maybe our title says it all, Land Grab Universities. Uh, the relationship of American higher ed, not just in Western states, to the expropriation of Native American lands that characterized settler colonialism's creep across the continent. Uh, so I'm John Plotz, a science fiction scholar and your regular RTB host. And joining me today is a new host from here at Brandeis, Jerome Thoreau, my colleague in the English department, author of a wonderful book on 19th century literature, art, and religion called Apocalyptic Geographies, Religion, media and the American landscape. So Jerome, welcome. Hi. Hi. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's awesome to have you. Uh, new faces, new faces. Uh, and we're happy to welcome, for reasons that will become obvious, uh, Dr. Robert Lee, whose PhD is from Berkeley. He was a fellow at Harvard and is now an assistant professor of history at Cambridge, uh, a very impressive instance of eastward migration, <laughs> Bobby. So um, hello and welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. It's great to have you. So you're, I'll just say that his work generally focuses on indigenous dispossession and U.S. state formation in the 19th century American West. And specifically, he has a cluster of articles in a database all linked to in our show notes in which that title, Land Grab University, is first aired. So, Bobby, can we just start by asking you about that project? And I should say um, you worked on it with the celebrated journalist Tristan Athone, a member of the Kiowa tribe, incoming editor-at-large at Grist, who previously served as editor-in-chief at the Texas Observer and Indigenous Affairs editor at High Country News. I just wanted to sort of slip that biography in since obviously, you know, this is so much about your work, but I assume a lot of it is work that you did with Tristan as well. Yeah, it's an important point. Uh, Landgrab Universities is a collaborative project. It's also a multimedia project, and I hope we can talk about both of those aspects, but just, just to give you a little bit of the, the subject matter background of what, it, what it's about, um, it is about the, the history of uh, land expropriation uh, for the benefit of land-grant universities in the United States. I'm sure uh, all your listeners have heard of land-grant universities. Um, in the most material sense, uh, they're called land-grant universities because they receive um, uh, lots of land from the federal government under the Morrill Act of 1862, a law that's passed, a land law that's passed in 1862. Um, and the investigation was an effort to uh, sort of 
unspool the, the big confusing knot of where this land came from and what were the indigenous nations that the United States acquired this land from and how, and how did it redistribute and capitalize uh, this land for the benefit of endowment building for land-grant universities, um, mostly in the 19th century, but into the 20th century. Um, and in order to build these endowments, in order to sort of seed the land-grant university program. And so the investigation was, uh, I mean, a root a digital humanities investigation where we were trying to track down, uh, map, and sort of unspool the knot completely to connect all of the indigenous nations that uh, the land and land-grant universities came from to the universities that they benefited. Great. And Bobby, just the key point for me, at least, that was a revelation. If you could sort of unpack that the land-grant university, I always associated it with, oh, the University of Nebraska was given some land to build its campus. But the land grants you're talking about do not operate that way at all. They operate at a distance, right? The university and its land can be far separated from one another. Well, that's right. But at anything with, uh, with the land-grant university system, there are exceptions. So there are a, a few universities that did acquire land for their campuses uh, uh, through, um, through these land grants. But for the most part, um, no, it's not about the land that's underneath the campuses. It's about land that's at a distance uh, that can be sold or managed in order to raise funds for endowments. So this is land that in some cases is uh, hundreds of miles away, in some cases thousands of, of miles away uh, from the universities who, who benefited. There were really two main ways uh, in which universities were able to take advantage of this act, the way that it was administered um, uh, differed geographically. So universities, uh, states that were had, had universities in the East um, had to select land in the West, uh, uh, surveyed land in the public domain that had been expropriated through various uh, treaties, ratified treaties, unratified treaties, land seizures, uh, and surveyed into those parcels that you see when you look out the window when you're flying in a plane across the United States, uh, and then to select parcels from anywhere on the surveyed public domain of the United States, because public land, federal land, uh, isn't in eastern states. The public domain is, is in the West for the most part. Um, and Western states had to select land to build up their uh, endowments um, that was within the boundaries of their individual states. So all of the University of California's land under the Morrill Act comes out of California, uh, but there are also maybe 30 other universities that benefit from land selections in California in the mid 19th century. This is the going on uh, during, the, during the time that you have the, the California genocide um, that's been written uh, about a lot in, uh, in the last few years um, going on. So the, so the land redistribution uh, differed, uh, differed by states, but it was generally uh, land that was at a distance, used for the purpose of generating capital, not spaces on which to hold classes. When you mention these selections, uh, is that kind of like draft day in the NFL or something? Like, do, do they were they all invited into the room to pick from a map? Is there, is there like a moment of selection, or how does that work? No, there's there, there's not a moment. A draft isn't uh, a draft. Really, isn't the the right image. It's all decentralized. Um, so for the most part, I mean, how this works with the, with the, the, the land that um, universities in the East, so you guys are in Massachusetts, um, the beneficiaries of Massachusetts grant was MIT, mm -hmm. uh, and you they had, to, they had to split it. Um, most of these states in the East that had these selections in the West, in order to actuate the selection, they got basically coupons 
This is called script. This is land land script that they could use. Uh, basically, it's a form. It says this is a piece of script for 160 acres under the Morrill Act of 1862 for the benefit of the state of Massachusetts. And then they have to fill in uh, where the land is. Um, but they don't have to do it themselves. They can sell that. They can sell the right to select it. So what most of the, the universities in the, uh, the East, what most of the states uh, benefiting universities in the East did um, was they just sold the script in bulk for the most part to speculators because uh, they didn't want to deal with the administrative costs of actually going through the whole selection process. There were major exceptions to this. Cornell, which is the largest uh, beneficiary of the Morrill Act, was a, was a major exception to this. Brown tried uh, to, at first, engage in selections, but then it abandoned the effort. Um, so most of these sort of sold, uh, sold the script or the coupons off to large speculators uh, so they could, because part of the way that the act worked was, um, uh, was that you could only live off the interest. So there was an incentive to raise capital as quickly as possible. And you could do that by selling, uh, by selling off the script uh, as quickly as possible to get the cash that you could then invest and, and, start, and start using for the benefit of the university. Um, it was different in the Western states that had to select land within, the, within their states. They tended to set up, because they didn't get script, they had to actually go through the process of, of selecting and they set up these land boards um, the University of California basically ran a real estate office uh, out of the university for, for decades. Um, and they were um, acting like, uh, like any other land speculators would uh, in, the, in the 19th and the early 20th century and looking for the best parcels that they could acquire to then, uh, to then resell. Um, and then you have a whole nother phenomenon where uh, universities wind up not selling this land this, uh, this happens a lot in sort of the mountain states in the West and the later state, the later territories that became states and were grandfathered into this program. I mean, it couldn't be, it, it couldn't be like a draft because this was a sort of evolving program right. where as new states were created, they were grandfathered in and, and joined in and became beneficiaries oh. of the Morrill Act. So in other words, happen. like New Mexico in 1912 or whatever gets. Yeah, handed, they yeah. come, they come much later and they don't get their Morrill Act. Uh, they don't get their Morrill Act sort of. Uh, uh, a portion until until much later, uh, and a lot of these later states wind up holding on to the land. So we did a follow up story uh, that showed that there were around five hundred thousand acres of the Morrill Act land that were never sold. They're still held on to by the states, and in many cases, um, these parcels are uh, they're leased out, and they have been able to sort of keep up with inflation in a way that the capital raised from the original grants is not, because the way, that the, the way that the program was structured, you had to spend the income that was produced every year. So you didn't have this effect of sort of compound interest growing, uh, growing the, the pot from $100,000 to you know, what it would be today if it had compound interest. It's still $100,000 for a lot of these early uh, grants, you know, if that's what they originally raised. But it's different for the ones that were able to hold onto the land. They are able to uh, set current leasing prices and to earn more money out of it. This is why South Dakota State University, which we which we mentioned in the in the article, the sort of main article uh, in the in the project, um, which was out ahead of the curve and sort of reallocating the use of these funds, they were able to reallocate them towards uh, the student needs of Indigenous students. Uh, but um, those were more than uh, symbolic funds because they had this land that's still generating probably a few hundred thousand dollars a year in income. 
So could I, uh, Bobby, ask us to go back a minute when you were talking about the the sort of the West versus East dynamics of, of this. Um, so in the article, you describe 11 million acres broken up into 80,000 parcels of land scattered mostly across 24 Western states. Um, and so I'm looking at the map and I see that there are more universities in the East and that most of the land, which is in purple, is in the um, sort of the plain states in the West. I should say um, all of these links and the map itself will be up on our website. So you should definitely navigate through the, the show notes to take a look at it. So, and I thought that the example you gave of the University of California and Cornell was really illuminating because, um, you know, you point out that like the University of California, which only got land within the borders of the state of California, got something like $740,000 worth um, in moral funds, whereas Cornell uh, got $5.7 million worth. And so that it kind of made me think of this older story of colonialism in the West as a resource colony, um, you know, a plundered province, as Bernard DeVoto famously called it. Um, and so I'm just wondering, you know, how we should think about the relationship of those, those two forms of colonialism, the sort of extractive resource colonialism versus the settler colonialism that I think is the focus of your story. I don't know if I would draw such a, a stark distinction between the, the Eastern states benefiting from the West and the Western states benefiting from the West. I mean, this is all a form uh, of colonial extraction. Uh, it just, you know, it's, it's different the sort of distance that they're, that they're operating on. Um, this was an issue uh, in, the, in the 19th century. There were certain controversies around the passage of the Morrill Act at all. Um, there were, uh, you know, there were Westerners who, who were saying, why should, why should Easterners? Uh, benefit from from land in the West, you know, not thinking at all in terms of the the colonization of the continent from indigenous people. Thinking about you know who among uh, the the settlers in this space uh, should benefit from uh, from its exploitation. Then there was the other the other half of the coin where, uh, and this is an argument that Justin Morrill, who was the the, the, the Morrill Act is named after Justin Morrill, who was a senator. Uh, from from Vermont, a congressman and, and a senator, when he was pushing, who who sponsored the bill, when he was pushing for this, he, one of the arguments that he was making uh, was that Eastern states had uh, had earned the right to uh, to sort of plunder the Western provinces, uh, as you put it, uh, as payback for doing things like building the infrastructure, like uh, like canals and turnpikes. Uh, that um, that eased passage into the West for settlers, right? Uh, that made it uh, that made it possible and attractive for Easterners to move into the West, uh, and they conceptualized it as a sort of a sort of a payback. Um, and of course, and then there were differences of where uh, um, where their congressional delegates would come down on this. You know, it wasn't unanimously passed. I don't remember uh, the the exact breakdown, but there were there were there were real arguments about who should. Uh, who should reap the benefits of, uh, of colonizing the continent. But for all of them, it was a process of, of colonization and resource extraction. Um, it was about who was, who was going to accrue the, the benefits and where, uh, where that was California gonna be uh, the sole benefit of the lands within California, or was it gonna be distributed across, uh, across the states? But there are a tremendous amount of, uh, of uh, what's known as uh, Indian claims cases in the 20th century. Um, I don't know uh, if you've uh, if you've heard of it or maybe read about it somewhere. It's something called the Indian Claims Commission. 
which ran from the mid-1940s until the late 1970s and was supposed to be a vehicle um, to process legal claims connected to broken treaties uh, across the country. I mean, it didn't live up to uh, its promise in a, in a lot of ways, and it was geared more towards extinguishing claims rather than providing real uh, economic redress. Uh, but there were hundreds of these cases, more than 800 of these claims that were processed in the mid 20th century. Um, the most famous of these is Black Hills case that eventually makes its way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court in 1980 decides um, that the, uh, the Sioux land in the Black Hills was stolen in the 1870s, in the 1860s and 1870s, uh, and they were going to give an award of uh, approximately $100 million uh, to compensate for that. And the, and the Sioux said, no, we're not taking that. Uh, and it's still unresolved to this day. But there are lots of these cases um, in the mid 20th century. And this was the source that we actually used uh, because one of the mandates for, um, for litigating broken treaties was to figure out what, was the, what were the damages. And in order to figure out the damages, part of that was figuring out what was paid uh, originally for the land. You know, were the treaties live up to, to what extent were they? So in the mid 20th century, the federal government um, engages in this massive uh, uh, forensic accounting investigation process uh, in order to in order to look into these cases. And one of the one one piece of that forensic accounting is figuring out what was paid for all these treaties in the 19th century. So this is the way we can figure out how much was paid originally for this land. It's using those uh, those sources. So so in the article, you make a distinction between parcels seized by unratified treaty versus those seized by treaty. And so um, I was curious about what the difference is and why that's important. Um, because you know, in, in the article, um, uh, you quote Jameson Sweet uh, as saying, you can point to every treaty where there's some kind of fraud, where there's some kind of coercion going on. Um, and so, so that would seem like, well, even, even when the land is ceded by treaty, you know, it's, it's still stolen land. And so, so why is the distinction between being seized by unratified treaty versus by versus ceded by treaty? Um, why is that important? Um, well, it's important for, for a couple of reasons. Uh, first and, and foremost, in the context of the research for the, for the article, uh, we were trying to figure out what was, uh, what was the difference between what was paid to extinguish um, indigenous title and what was raised from the, 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 what was raised for the endowments, uh, the capital that was raised to be able to see what that and quantify what that difference was. Uh, when it comes to the difference between uh, ratified and unratified treaties in that context, uh, ratified treaties typically would have some kind of a, a token payment. You know, this might be a few cents an acre, or sometimes it might be as high as 10 cents or 25 cents an acre. Um, but mostly in the range of, you know, one to three cents an acre. Um, unratified treaties are land that is, uh, well, that, I mean, uh, literally an unratified treaty mean it means it's unratified by Congress. They made an agreement sort of in the field. This is, I mean, this is a story of California. California is all unratified treaties in the, in the early 1850s. They make this, all of these treaties, 18 treaties across, uh, across California, um, Congress never ratifies them. So they technically never become the law of the land. Uh, the land is taken. Uh, the land's taken under these treaties, but no, uh, no, no, no payments are ever made. Uh, there is no fulfillment of, of these treaties. Um, so California is really the epicenter 
for that, although you also see it in other places in Oregon, uh, in Nevada, uh, there are lots of unratified treaties, um, but no payments at all would have been made for, uh, for unratified treaties versus ratified treaties where there would have been a relation set up and some sort of, uh, some sort of token payment. So in other words, like New Mexico in 1912 or whatever gets handed, yeah. So, so as you did that research, what surprised you as your, as your data emerged? I mean, was there an aha moment? Well, we didn't know what it, what it was going to look like, and it, it's not so much an, it, it's not so much an aha moment, but it's like, uh, yeah, we should have known moment, right? When you look at that map that you were talking about before, that that's linked uh, on the site that shows all of the eighty thousand parcels. That's like the investigation, like in miniature on one page. You know, the picture where all these where all these parcels are. The map was made by uh, by Margaret Pierce, who was a cartographer for the project. At the beginning, we talked about sort of collaboration of this. That's, uh, that's Margaret Pierce's uh, 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 work. Um, but we didn't know what that map was going to look like. But now that we see it, it's obvious why it looks the way it does. If you take a look at it, what you're going to see is a big sort of half crescent that goes from Missouri up until uh, up, up through uh, Wisconsin, into Minnesota and Wisconsin. Uh, and it's sort of like this uh, this half depth crescent shape of of parcels. Um, this was where the the sort of main uh, uh, property frontier was in the 1860s and 1870s. So this is why the script was located in this way. This was sort of the hot property market. What you also see is a cluster in California, uh, in the in the in, in the great Central Valley of, of California, where there's this really other uh, dense set of parcels. This is other script that's being uh, that's being snapped up in the uh, in the 1860s and the 1870s uh, in California, which is the other hot land market. Um, so this is just uh, the sort of, it's sort of a pedestrian story of the beneficiaries of these universities, you know, uh, doing what uh, what others were doing um, at the time, what the sort of larger land markets were doing. Because I mean, the Morrill Act acres, and I, I was describing it a couple of minutes ago as this this huge land area. It's still just a drop in the bucket of the amount of land that's being churned, uh, uh, indigenous land that's being converted into settler property in the 19th century. What we're talking about in all is like more than a billion acres over the course of the 19th century. And this is like 10, 10 million acres, 11 million acres. That's like 1% of it. Yeah, that's one thing that's, I mean, was surprising to me and made me think differently about um, efforts to return land um you know and when i think of of land back i tend to think of places like the black hills or you know national parks or you know public large contiguous uh tracts of public land um and uh but then when you start thinking about those eighty thousand, you know parcels of land where some are like in walmart parking lots and some are on uh, playgrounds in california you know and it's it's um i, I guess it it reveals just how how complicated um, the process of achieving justice would be, um, and and sort of makes me wonder. I guess like is is returning land feasible, or since these these uh, parcels have been kind of capitalized, right? Like they've been invested um, and turned Digested. into money. Yeah, turned into into endowments. Um, is uh, is the is the the best mechanism for for justice through the kinds of scholarships like you were talking about at South Dakota State, or are there other models? 
Yeah, I mean, there, there are sort of two tiers of feasibility or, or ease of feasibility of land return uh, that which is land specific uh, to the distribution under the Morrill Act. Um, the land that's still retained by the states, so the small percentage, about 5% or so, that's still retained by the states, um, that could be returned by the states. I mean, it would be a matter, uh, the, the, the real challenge would be political because you would have to go to the state legislatures and convince them uh, to divest themselves of this land. And most of this land is in uh, Western states that are controlled by Republican state uh, legislatures. Not that I would expect a, a different outcome from uh, Democratic state legislatures, but I think that the, the hill would even be a higher decline uh, in a lot of these uh, deep red Western states to convince them uh, to uh, to divest themselves of this of this land. Um, the other so California land, might be an interesting test case. Sorry, Bobby. Just in terms of yeah. thinking about a Western blue state, maybe California there would be more friction between competing political interests. And... Yeah, but they are in the category of having sold all of their land. Oh, so they're in the second category of having uh, distributed their land into the open market, the real estate markets of the United States. This is the place that. Uh, that's been chopped up and turned into tract housing. It's been turned into baseball diamonds, you know, uh, into uh, the various private public um, uh, property uh, of all sorts. So it is in the same boat as property on the public domain of the United States. It's really no different. Uh, it's just it, it, it reached the market through a different law. But there are thousands of these laws in the, in the 19th century that produced the sort of mosaic of property uh, that we have on the former public domain of the United States. Um, but then when it comes to sort of uh, different or more creative uh, solutions to, to what to do, and, and, and all California is a good example. I mean, California, University of California owns other land uh, that they have acquired over the course of the, the late 19th and 20th and 21st century. And you could think of, uh, people are thinking about this, about uh, trying to come up with uh, new types of partnerships for, uh, for sharing or, or controlling these spaces or returning other land or, uh, or creating you know, programs uh, that, could, uh, that could generate, that could redirect the funds uh, that are not only being produced, but to pay back what's been produced over time uh, through the Morrill Act. And that could be channeled into a number of different things when people talk about this project. Uh, the, the question of, you know, what now, what next, um, often, often comes up, you know, what do we, uh, what do we do now? Uh, and these often re uh, revolve around uh, what um, land-grant universities uh, can do in terms of uh, expanding enrollment, changing curriculum, providing better services, and more recruitment of Indigenous, indigenous uh, students, staff, um, and faculty. Uh, various programs that are going on. I mean, South Dakota State is one of them. We've seen some action sort of moving uh, in this direction. The University of Minnesota uh, seems to be active in this way. Ohio State University has uh, created a partnership um, uh, with the First Nations Development Institute um, to think about what uh, moving forward with the, the full knowledge of the Morrill Act can, can look like uh, for them. It's still to be seen what's going to come out of that. So, um, but there are there are other sort of creative solutions um, that could be put in play. Sorry, this is probably a totally different research project that one would have to undertake. But do you have any idea of what the numbers are of Native American or Indigenous students who've gotten degrees at these universities? Like, do they represent the vast majority of all Native Americans who've ever gotten college degrees? Probably got 
came through one of these universities or how, do you know what those numbers look like? I, I don't know what they look like specifically, but one of the reactions to this piece was a, uh, uh, a study that appeared in the Native American and Indigenous Studies Journal by a pair of economists who were not asking that per question precisely. They were asking the question, how well have land-grant universities served Indigenous students vis-a-vis mm. uh, uh, -vis non land grant universities, not saying exactly how many, uh, but in general, what they found is that uh, land grant universities were um, not statistically better or uh, had a statistically more significant record of providing educations to uh, indigenous students um, than non-land grant universities. Um, there are some that, uh, that uh, enroll larger numbers than, than others, University of New Mexico versus uh, something, like, uh, uh, something like Cornell. Uh, we did include on, uh, so uh, there, there, are, there were three parts of the project um, that you sort of mentioned at the beginning. There's the, there's the article, there's the, uh, there's the database, uh, and there's a website. And so on, on the website, landgrabu.org, there are pages for each university. Um, and one of the statistics that we did collect for each one of the universities is what is the, uh, what is the, the proportion of, uh, of Native um, Indigenous students today uh, for those universities. I think the, the statistics on there, I think are 2019 or, or 2020, whichever mm -hmm. ones were the most recent ones published when, uh, when the story came out. Um, but so we have a tiny sliver of that story that's waiting to be, to be written there. I was thinking about that Walter Benjamin idea that every document of civilization is also a document of barbarism. And I was thinking about the ways in which one of the things I love about this project is that it helps us see universities, well, as you said at the beginning, as kind of like the railroads, as instruments of, you know, expropriation and extinction of Native land claims. And yet also, they are like the places that we go to if we want to study questions like this, like they're both of those things. And so the kind of prosaic question I had is there's a way now that universities are trying to grapple with that through the land acknowledgement process. And I just wondered if you had any thoughts given the land acknowledgement that you're proposing is not so much the acknowledgement of the acres that we're standing on, but it's more about those acres all the way over there that were extinguished, I guess, in order for this university to be founded or to, you know, to be funded. Um, so yeah, whether you have thoughts about that question about like the land acknowledgement as a way of grappling with the, the, the double legacy of universities or, or, or other ways that we can think about that double legacy. Yeah, the, the Benjamin quote is a great way of thinking about the, um, the, the sort of paradox or the, the, the contradiction that's embedded within uh, the land-grant universities. On the one hand, these sort of uh, sites of, uh, of, of progress, of development. I mean, this is a story that you see uh, in the things like the, the murals that they, that they have up at these land-grant universities where it's like a, a vision of American progress through technological uh, development. And there's a lot of great things to say about what land-grant universities have done and produced. I mean, it's graduate, as a graduate of, land, of a land-grant university who's responsible for a lot of the vaccines uh, that we get as children. You know, the things that we use, television tubes have been developed at land-grant universities. Um, there, there are a lot of wonderful things, the food that we eat, the, the, the dominant corn variety 
that is in most of the food that Americans eat is developed at Lorraine Gray University, whether or not that's a good or bad thing. Yeah, that's, uh, that I'll one is that. a mixed blessing, I'll I think. Yeah. To, to <laughs> listeners to decide, but it has been yeah. a, uh, a transformative uh, thing that's been cast as, uh, as progress. And for a lot, uh, for most of sort of the, uh, the period of sort of public memory and historical writing about land-grant universities, it's about, been about telling that side of the story the story of, of progress and development that comes out of land-grant universities. But the flip side of that is the flip side of every parcel of land that's been plucked out of the public domain in the United States. On the, on the one hand, you have this, uh, this history of disposal, of, of the gain of, uh, of individuals of this, of this property. On the flip side is the history of colonialism um, and resource extraction uh, that's been traditionally sort of left out of the, the story. Um, and land acknowledgements um, have been one solution, and I think a, a, a highly problematic um, and imperfect one uh, uh, to uh, to recognizing uh, to recognizing that duality. Um, one of the things that we were trying to do with this uh, project was to show, um, I mean, one of the the many shortcomings of I think uh, land acknowledgements. So land acknowledgements were. were you know, they, they first took off outside the United States. It sort of migrated. They're this global phenomenon where settler societies uh, 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 recognize um, their uh, their presence on expropriated indigenous land. And the, the problem becomes when that is uh, a sort of a performance in itself rather than a starting point for some sort of material change or a concrete action uh, that moves towards redress. But what we were trying to show in the Landgrab University's project um, was that it's not just about the land that you're standing on. It's the way, the whole ways in which land has been capitalized uh, to transform uh, settler societies. And this is just one, this is just one small um, aspect of it. Uh, so we have seen um, uh, we have seen some changes in land acknowledgments uh, in response to the research. Uh, so for example, the uh, uh, Washington. Um, State University of Pullman uh, incorporated some of our data about Washington State and the funds that they raised out of this into their land acknowledgement mm. to acknowledge that. Um, and not a lot of the others are, are doing that. What, what we've seen um, in reaction to, to the piece, um, especially lately, uh, the, the Utah State University recently came out with the land acknowledgement. Uh, Cornell University adjusted its land acknowledgement to, um, uh, to, uh, uh, to acknowledge it's, it's land grant history, um, but they are tending to focus on using land acknowledgements to, uh, uh, to, to cling to the idea um, that land acknowledgements are just about the land that you're standing on, um, not about the, the society that is developed around it. It's not about the buildings that you're standing in, which are also provided through this process of right. appropriation. Right. Since you mentioned the global context, Bobby, can I just ask really quickly, um, do you, um, are there comparable projects undertaken in other settler societies, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, South Africa, are there records of those similar like land grant university processes or? Yeah, there, there, there are, um, especially in the, um, in the British empire. Um, that is the context that I'm most familiar with, um, mainly through the work of one of the contributors to the, to the uh, forum that they had on the Land Grab University's project in the in the NACE journal, looking at this from a, from a British colonial perspective, you see these uh, universities under different forms in Australia, 
in New Zealand, in, in Canada. I mean, the whole, uh, I mean, land-grant universities, as they emerge and under the sort of, uh, they didn't appear fully formed with the Morrill Act of 1862. This was a model that developed over a long period of time. I mean, from my research, um, I think one of the earliest land-grant universities is, uh, or land-grad universities is Trinity College Dublin. Uh, which in the late um, in the late 1500s uh, gets Irish land that's been expropriated uh, to start Trinity College Dublin. Um, so using this sort of overseas colonization uh, 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 form of extraction, and then that that model uh, gets exported to the American colonies. Yeah. Um, you see it in Virginia. You see it in you see it in New England. That's um, fascinating. Once you get to the 19th yeah. century in the United States, you have other. Um, other land grants that are pre-Moral Act land grants to build state universities. The University of Missouri uh, yeah. gets one of these. There's um, uh, there's a, a university in Mississippi. It's no longer uh, in operation. Um, that was Jefferson Davis's alma mater that received a grant of uh, a, a grant of indigenous land. There was a story that came out after we published land grab universities in Scalawag uh, magazine. Uh, that documented the University of North Carolina's pre-Moral Act uh, uh, um, fundraising from the sell-off of Cherokee land. Um, so there is this long history of doing this, and it's a, and there's a wide history too. Um, I don't, uh, I'm not as familiar with. I know there's some in the Spanish Empire uh, universities, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, in Mexico City, uh, in 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 Peru. There's a Potosi College. Uh, in the early colonial period that is that is benefiting through uh, Spanish colonial land policies. Um, this runs much deeper and much wider, but there's still a wide field of research left to be done on uh, both on how it operates within what becomes the United States uh, and how it operates globally. Thank you. I really hope people looking for dissertation topics just pricked up their ears at that, because I'm, I'm really glad you made the point about it being outside just the it, the British Empire. I assumed it was a British Empire, so it's helpful to know that it's worldwide. Um, that's great. Yeah. I wanted to circle back a minute. Um, you were talking about some of the responses uh, from uh, land-grant institutions themselves in terms of their land acknowledgments. And I was just going to ask what the response to the story has been uh, from Native communities. Yeah, I mean, it's been um, it's been a mix. Most of the response, most of the body of the response, has come from native communities within universities. So, uh, indigenous student groups, uh, indigenous faculty uh, that have really been the, uh, the the central sort of driving force in uh, asking their universities to respond uh, to this piece or to think about. Uh, what um, the history of the Morrill Act uh, uh, means at their at their universities, and that is where the main uh, the main focus of reactions uh, have been. There have been, you know, some uh, we we've uh, we've spoken uh, at uh, at the um, uh, the Indigenous GIS conference, uh, and some people there are working on uh, issues related to that. We've gotten requests from some. Uh, tribal nations for um, for access or uh, instruction on how to use uh, the data set, uh, but really the uh, propensity of the response to this piece has been uh, uh, native communities connected to and embedded within university communities. The other set of literature that I tend to 
uh, connect this research to is uh, the emerging work on the capitalization of the university, uh, primarily through its connections to slavery uh, and, the, and the slave trade. Um, this is really sort of the thrust where uh, of, you know, of, of looking at the university in this way came from, of, you know, rethinking and sort of tossing out really uh, the, the, the old literature on land-grant universities and, the thing, and thinking about them as uh, participants in histories of colonization um, and, and exploitation um, and, and resource extraction. So thinking about like um, Greg Wilder's Ebony and Ivy um, and the reports that came out at, at Brown about slavery in the university um, and thinking about universities also as connected uh, to um, uh, to the history of the colonization of indigenous lands. Yeah. I mean, it's important to remember that the Morrill Act is passed in 1862 in the middle of yeah. the Civil War, which is in large part a fight over uh, where slavery is going to be able to expand into, about how uh, indigenous land in the West is going to be exploited um, in places like uh, California and in Texas, um, and what that is going to look like. And it had been uh, I mean, it, slavery and, and land expropriation had been connected in the, in the United States um, all the way up to this point. I mean, especially in places uh, like, like the South, yep. Um, yep. where, where the, the removals of the 1830s are part and parcel of the cotton yep. boom that allows, yep. the, allows the growth of the Southern economy and, and makes it possible for uh, a civil war to happen. Jerome, unless you have a final question, this might be a good time to pivot to recallable books. Sounds good to me. Okay. So um, so as uh, listeners will know, this is the moment where we ask uh, our participants if they're, you know, if you enjoyed this conversation, is there is there a book you would like to point uh, listeners to? So uh, uh, Bobby, do you mind if we start with you? Yeah. Um, so uh, I want to, I want to draw attention to a much older book in this historiography of, uh, of land-grant universities that we were talking about. Um, this is a book uh, called The Wisconsin Pinelands of Cornell University. And if you can tell from the descriptive <laughs> title, it's an old school monograph. Uh, this is published in 1943 uh, by Paul Wallace Gates, who was the Dean of Public Land Studies in the mid 20th century, really from the, from the 1930s to the 1970s. And in the 1930s uh, and 1940s, um, he was at Cornell. You know, while he was at Cornell University for most of his uh, for most of his career, he had access to the archives there, and he wrote what was the, one of the earliest and most um, sophisticated uh, accounts of the disposal of land uh, under the Morrill Act, using Cornell uh, as an example. It's really a, a remarkable book. It's been reissued by Cornell University Press. It's published more nearly uh, 80 years ago. It was uh, reissued in maybe a second, uh, third edition. Um, and he argues, uh, and I think correctly, uh, that um, Cornell's um, land grant under the Morrill Act uh, facilitated one of the most successful land speculations in American history, the raising of this, you know, $5 million that uh, exploded in value and made the, really made the university possible, made it the third wealthiest university in the United States from being a non-existent university wow. you know, 20 years yeah. earlier. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, he, and it's really this wonderful detailed study of the land-grant university system. But the really interesting thing reading it now 
is to be able to take a step back and to imagine how this uh, very uh, thorough, very detailed scholar uh, just didn't want to, uh, wasn't engaged with conceptualizing uh, this whole entire aspect of the history of public lands. You won't find anything about Native people uh, in, this, in this book. If it were being written today, I think it would be called The Ojibwa Lands of, uh, yeah. of Cornell yeah. University. Um, but, but it isn't. And it's really emblematic of what, uh, what is um, uh, distinguished about the long history of public lands uh, scholarship in the United States and what is short-sighted about it. It has this long history of developing, not thinking about uh, the consequences, causes, and results of colonialism in the United States, sort of most fundamental aspect yeah. of, the th- of, the, of, the, of the topic uh, that they were devoted to. So you have this huge, brilliant literature that yeah. is completely disengaged uh, from the conquest of a continent. Yeah, it doesn't uh, it's really fascinating to, to read these days. And it is, yeah. It's an old book, but it's it's widely available. That's great. Doesn't doesn't Eve Sedgwick open the epistemology of the closet by saying, along with our epistemology of knowledge, we need an epistemology of ignorance as well? Like, in other words, a genealogy of the things that are not said. Yeah. Questions not asked. Yeah. yeah, that's great. That, that uh, actually leads pretty well into to my recallable book, which actually is not uh, is not a book maybe appropriately since we're talking about uh, about an article or a series of articles um, but um, uh, well and I suppose before I say that I, I just want to make a plug for the high country news um, as just mm. like a, a resource for understanding the, all the issues you know in in the West that I mean, there's nothing like it and for people who want to teach those issues and teach stories like land grab universities uh, story um, they've got a great um, uh, program where you can, where your students get, uh, you know, free digital access for a semester. Um, so it's, it's a, a good resource. Um, <laughs> do you get a commission on this? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, but, uh, but at any rate, so, um, but the, the source that I, that I wanted to talk about, um, is, is Brenda Child's essay, um, the boarding school is metaphor, um, about, of course, a different, uh, different area of, Native education, um, talking about the boarding school, and she's interested in um, how the boarding school became this kind of master metaphor for colonial processes, and in a way that, in some cases, sort of flattened the diversity of experiences that um, individuals and communities experienced within those institutions. Um, but uh, but she asks this question. She says, um, uh, "Is the boarding school experience overly remembered?" Is it remembered at the expense of other significant events, tragedies, and practices of settler colonialism that also dramatically shaped American Indian people's lives? Um, and so I was just thinking about um, that, uh, that I guess the, the Native experience in higher education might be one of those, those less, um, less remembered aspects of Indigenous life. You know, I'm thinking of... Uh, I mean, as, to put my literary uh, scholar hat on for a minute, just thinking about the you know classic um, works of Native American literature that I sometimes teach, um, whether it's uh, you know the, uh, the protagonist Abel in A House Made of Dawn, or or Tayo in uh, Ceremony, or um, uh, Archilde in, in Darcy McNichols' The Surrounded. You know these characters. Um, I guess those novels um, make a lot out of the the elementary school education and the boarding school education um, of 
uh, or at least the sort of the um, the colonizers education, I would say they're not all in boarding schools. Um, but um, uh, but we we I feel like we read much less often in the literary record about the experience of native people in higher education. Um, even though um, those each of the authors that I just mentioned did attend public universities. Um, and so, uh, so I don't know, our, our conversation about the tribal colleges just makes me um, feel like that is, um, you know, uh, an aspect of, um, of Native education that we should pay more attention to. That's great. I love how in your non-book recommendation, you nonetheless slipped in three book titles. And I haven't read House Made of Dawn, so I'm, I'm very excited to read that. Uh, and my, my um, uh, recallable book is, is um, kind of owes a lot, actually, to, to hearing Jerome give a paper about this book, but it's Willa Cather's The Professor's House. And she's, you know, I thought of her originally because she is, you know, a child of the University of Nebraska. Like, it's inconceivable to think of this, you know, young woman from the prairies rising up to become like a New York, you know, literary force and novelist without going to University of Nebraska. But of course, you know, also an instrument of barbarism, you know, she's part of that um, settler colonial movement of Nebraska in the 1870s and 80s. And then Professor's House is, you know, probably best remembered as a novel that's kind of elegiac about um, the kind of lost world, uh, quote unquote, lost world of the cliff, cliff dwelling um, Native American, sort of the, the New Mexican settlements that the, the one of the protagonists visits, but it's also an academic novel. Like it takes place actually on a campus with an older professor who is hearing the story of these quote lost worlds of Native American culture. So it just kind of, I think it's a beautiful juxtaposition of like the being elegiac about something, striving to understand it, and also profiting from the way that that, that very same thing that you're trying to understand has been expropriated and extinct, you know, the claim to it has been extinguished um, and reinvested in, in, in the land grant university. So yeah, Willa Cather. Um, Okay. A product of the land grant university, I should say. Right? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's, yeah. that's my whole point. I yeah. totally, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Bobby, thank you so much for coming. It's a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Um, no, thanks for having me. It's great talking to you guys. Cool. And I should just say quickly that Recall This Book is sponsored by Brandeis and the Mandel Humanity Center. Sound editing is by Naomi Cohen, website design and social media by Miranda Puri of the English Department. And Jerome and I are eager, of course, to hear your comments, your criticism, and your thoughts um, on today's discussion um, and on Recall This Book generally. So please uh, subscribe if you're not already a subscriber by wherever you get your podcast and write a review or rate us um, on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever. So from all of us here at RTB, thanks for listening. <laughs>